If I could briefly review Genesis chapter 1, we have God as the creator of all things. Genesis chapter 2 details the account of the creation of man. At the end of the chapter, it is revealed that God is the arbitrator of human ethics. It is God as creator who determines what is right and what is wrong for us. That which is good, what is it? What is good? How is it determined? That which is good is that which corresponds to the Creator God's nature. And because God is loving and because God is merciful and wise, He commands us as His creatures to do what is good, to align ourselves with the divine nature. He does this so that He will be magnified as the Creator and He does this so that we, the creature, will know the greatest joy in life, fulfillment, and in fact, true happiness. But as we noted in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobeyed the will of God. They said, not us. Like every human being, they longed for happiness, they longed for satisfaction, they longed for joy, but they decided that the path that they would take to joy would be their path the way they wanted to go. And so they violated God's command, which was intended for their good. They sinned. From the day Adam and Eve sinned, the history of mankind has been a record of an incessant quest to elevate man's glory over God's glory and to follow man's will over God's will. That's a very bold statement, and it has some profoundly negative implications to our worldview. But I don't base that harsh judgment on the basis simply of experience or intuition or tradition. If someone asked you to epitomize the essence of human society in less than 60 seconds, what would you say? I think we could turn to Genesis 11 verses 1 through 9 and just read this short story. That would do pretty well. This story is not free-floating in the text of Genesis, nor is any biblical narrative recorded simply for our amusement. This story is positioned in such a way that it is clearly intended to succinctly capture the essence of human society in general. What has happened in Genesis 1-10? through 10? In the first 10 chapters, there has been a universal focus. Moses considers the whole world In chapter 11, beginning with verse 10 and following, he begins to lead down the narrow path to one individual, Abraham, in Genesis 12, where the focus of Scripture is upon this one man and his family and then upon the one small nation of Israel. That nation of Israel, think about it, from Genesis chapter 12 through the rest of the Old Testament, that nation of Israel is the focus of Scripture. In other words, God leaves the story of Genesis 11, 1 through 9 ringing in our ears as the Bible peels away from a consideration of humanity in general and narrows its concentration upon the people of God, specifically the people of Israel. Genesis 11, 1 through 9 is our world. This simple story epitomizes human history in general, past, present, and future. It succinctly captures the overriding ambition of fallen humanity and how God sovereignly relates to this ambition. I firmly believe that you cannot understand your world without an adequate understanding of the passage that is before us this morning. 
In this passage, I've broken it down into two main lines of thought. The first that we find in this narrative is the ambition of fallen humanity, beginning with verse 1. What is the unifying passion of our world? What is the dominant quest and purpose of mankind as a whole? You must answer that question. As a matter of fact, you do answer that question. You may not be able to put it into words, but we answer that question every day. The way we filter the information that comes to us, the way we filter life as it passes before our eyes, evidences how we answer the question. What is the purpose of mankind as a whole, past, present, and future? What is the dominant quest of humanity? This question is answered in this historical account before us this morning. We have, first of all, it is in a sense a play on a stage. And we have, first of all, the setting found in verses 1 and 2. We have language and then location. Verse 1, we notice concerning language. This is just the setup for the story. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. Following the universal flood recorded in Genesis 7 and 8, Noah's descendants shared one common language for a number of generations. Now, it says there one language and one speech. Why say that? Well, the first phrase, one language, just means that, one language, like we would define English, for instance. But that second phrase means one speech, means it gives the idea of one vocabulary. Or, in other words, there was no vocabulary. I mean, you, you talk to a doctor sometimes and you have to stop them and go, whoa, hold on. They have a different vocabulary, don't they? No difference in vocabulary. There's no difference in accent which would hinder universal understanding. H-A-M was not ham to one person and ham to another person. It was just ham to everybody. How does that fit, though, with Genesis 11? How does Genesis 11 fit, then, with Genesis chapter 10? We have one language, even one, there's not even any barrier of vocabulary or accent or anything like that. Everybody's speaking the same way. But we noticed in chapter 10 that There was all kinds of division of languages. We've talked about this in the past. Obviously, chapter 11 follows chapter 10 chronologically. Notice verse 5 of chapter 10. We have here from these maritime people spread out into the territories by their clans of their nations, each with its own language. That's the descendants of Japheth, the descendants of Ham, verse 20 of chapter 10. 10.20, 10.20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Shem, verse 31 and 32, these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. The conclusion of the table of nations, chapter 10, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent with their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood, all divided by language. And then we come to 11.1 and says everybody spoke the same language. Chapter 11 follows chapter 10 in the text, but not chronologically. Chapter 11 comes first, and there's some reasons for that. We won't take a lot of time to discuss why. But we encounter in chapter 10 a diverse, segregated world, and part of the segregation is owing to linguistic differences. No such differences in chapter 11. And I believe that part of the reason is that this is the last narrative that deals with the world as a whole, and it is laid out here as a paradigm which will be, which will be carried out through the rest of Scripture. So we have this narrative purposely inserted in a dyschronological order. 
We have language. There's a common language. Verse 2, we know secondly, as far as setting goes, as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. That word there is very important in the original text, and it deals with the issue of location. Eastward, that is from Mount Ararat, where the ark had landed, they moved. That that Hebrew word is very insightful here. It's often translated to pull up or to set out gives us the idea of people. Just think about it. Where is world history here? They've landed on Mount Ararat, the, the, the ark has, and the, the three sons of Noah are now having children, and as the generations are passing, they're pulling up their tent stakes. They keep moving, as God said. They begin to fill the earth, and they move eastward. Where are they moving? Apparently, in the earliest generations, everyone, question mark, I don't know if everybody did, but it it, it appears that way here, as men moved eastward. It might be everybody, it might just be some of the people, but whoever it is, as they moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. Likely, the people who left Mount Ararat moved toward the most fertile land. Would that not follow? You can move anywhere you want on earth. Nobody owns it as such. You can plant up wherever you want to plant. And so you would move to what is very fertile soil. They're moving eastward, and they keep descending down from Mount Ararat to the east and land in this plain of Shinar, or what we know as Mesopotamia. The Tigris and Euphrates rivers flow through this area in modern Iraq. It's a very fertile valley, or was a very fertile valley. The Talmud, that is a Jewish writing, Jewish traditions, refers to this plain as the Valley of the World. And for very good reason. If you went to the University of Minnesota today and you looked up all of the archaeologists and set them out in a line outside your door and brought them in so that they could not confer, and you asked every last one of them, where did civilization start? They'd all say Mesopotamia. There's no real debate about that. The area was first called Summer. S-U-M-E-R, then it was referred to as Summer of Akkad, and later as Babylonia. We refer to it today more often as Mesopotamia. As we think back on ancient history, where the word Shinar comes from, we're not entirely sure, but it's referring to that same area because we will see later the city of Babylon is in this area, is in this plain. But the key of the text here, I think, is that they settled there. The wandering nomads became settlers. They pulled up their tent stakes and kept moving down from Mount Ararat, but now they settle in this lush valley. They liked life here. They enjoyed it. As they moved down from the Mount of Ararat, they could keep seeing fertile land ahead of them, but now down here it was fertile land all around. Why move any further? Let's settle down here. And so we move in. That's the setting. There's a common language, and they've now settled in this plain of Shinar. We move then secondly to the human goal, which is expressed in verse 3. What is their goal as they settle here? They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Settlement is their goal. We're going to stay here. Permanence. Bricks can be used in a number of ways, but... As far as I can tell, anywhere where bricks are baked, people are building buildings, right? They're made in some way, in some sense, for an established area. You not as nomads aren't into the brick, brick baking business. Wow, <laughs> try that. We tried silly Sally this morning in our adult class, but the brick baking business—they're not in that business. They've got tents and they just move around, but we're baking bricks here so that we can settle. Permanence. 
There's an editorial note there at the end of verse 3. Did you notice that? Well, how does that fit in there? Didn't that strike you as kind of a strange statement? They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So what? Well, what we're dealing with here is primitive building materials, and it's a foreshadowing. It's, there's, almost, there's irony here that these people are seeking to settle and to build a civilization, and can you get this? They're using brick and tar. It's almost like a joke. They haven't even figured out how to use stone and mortar yet. But their goal is obviously in verse 3, settlement. There's a more sinister goal, or added to it, a sinister goal in verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Let me just summarize their plan here. It comes, we could just summarize it under the word fame. They want to settle and they want fame. What is their plan? To build a tower and a city with bricks. What is the motivation? Positively, you see it there in the text, verse 4, what's the motivation? Why do they want to do it? Positively, to make a name for ourselves. Negatively, what is it? We don't want to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so they build a city. The descendants of Noah decide to settle in one place to build this great city, and it recalls 4.17 of Genesis, doesn't it? We can't miss that. Cain is building a city. Now these people are building a city. There's another city that's developing. After Cain built his city, there was the destruction of the flood, and the godless were wiped off the face of the earth. But now we have a civilization starting again. And just as was the boastful Lamech of the city of Cain in chapter 4. Now we're beginning to see again the boastful words of mankind. We will build a city to increase our name, our fame. Now, is there something evil about building a city? Is that in itself sinful? I don't know that it is necessarily. Not per se. I don't know if it's sinful per se, but why do they want to build the city? Verse 4 says, "...so that we may make a name for ourselves." We want to settle here. We want to bake these bricks. We want to add mortar or this tar, build it up into a city that will praise us. This desire is typified in the building of the tower. We will build a tower that reaches to the heavens. As today with steel and glass, so in that day with brick and tar, tall buildings are symbols of what? Of human grandeur and accomplishment. You ever notice you, you watch a sporting event, a, a professional sporting event on television, what do they picture? Almost always there's a picture of the city, isn't there? And they pan back and see the, the horizon. And, and just, just pick this up sometime. Watch how often they comment about the beautiful skyline. Well, what's the skyline? They're not talking about the sky. They're talking about these beautiful big towers, these big, this city, these what we call skyscrapers. And they also like it if they can look at a new stadium. That really means a lot to them as well. But uh, how do they name these skyscrapers? It's the IDS building. It's usually whoever pays for it gets to name it, right? There's the Sears Tower. Or there's the Trump Tower or something like that. They're usually named after someone who paid the bill. In our day, you don't do the building too. You just pay the bill. But they're, they're, they're there to draw attention. And we know what's going on in our downtown, in Minneapolis. What I understand is many of these buildings are, are empty, or at least for periods of time, they're largely empty because a new one's going to be built. 
with somebody else's name on it. Skyscrapers, even in our day, are evidence of human ingenuity, of importance, of grandeur. The building of this tower was probably Nimrod. Go back to 1010. The first centers of Nimrod's kingdom were Babylon. So it appears that he is maybe the leader of the building of this, uh, of this tower that we find here in Genesis 11. But whatever the case, it reaches into the heavens, 11.4. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now some people have tried to say, you maybe learned this in Sunday school, hopefully not in this church, but you maybe learned this in Sunday school, that they were trying to reach God. You know, they were trying to get into heaven with this tower, and they were just going to keep building and keep building, and they were so dumb, they didn't realize how, hard the, how high the sty- stars were. I don't think that's the case at all. How do we talk about tall buildings? Skyscrapers. Do we mean they're really scraping the sky? Is that what we're saying? Do they really mean that they're reaching into the heavens? The, in an evolutionary mindset, these people are very dumb. They aren't very dumb. They are very intelligent. I think they have all the intelligence that you and I have, and probably then some, because they don't have all of the genetic difficulties that we've faced over the, over the millennia. They didn't know all that we know about science, but they knew they couldn't get to the stars with a tower. What they are saying is the same thing we're maybe saying when we talk about skyscrapers. There is this point of elevation that draws attention. What they want to do is build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, not so that we can displace God. Now, there were some pagan myths that said that the ancients tried to do that, to try to displace God with a tower. But I don't think that's the point here. I think they're just saying we want to make a name for ourselves. We want people to notice us, to see us, to see our technology and our ingenuity and our development and to thereby gain fame. You know, this is a secret to many Christians, but science as we know it was really initiated by Bible-believing Christians. Um, just to, I won't go into that in any great detail, but if you believe that the rock is a god, you're not going to split it in half and find out what's inside, right? But Bible believers who saw that God was the creator of all things and that we were the ones who were to settle the earth and to subdue it started breaking rocks open and etc. And, and developing science as we understand it. But the vast majority of society's movers and shakers, the scientists and the builders and the like, do so to the glory of man. Whatever building project they're undertaking, it might be an actual building. It might be the cure of a disease. It might be a new form of transportation or a new discovery in aiding us in, tech, in, in communications. Tower building today largely is to the glory of man. And never forget that this pursuit is always social. That is, man works as a community of sinners, not so much in isolation, but as a great society moving in rough sync. Positively, the goal is fame, to make a name for ourselves. And what we see happening in our world just follows with this spirit. There's a negative goal. Did you see it there in verse 4? At the end of verse 4, so that we may make a name for ourselves is the positive goal that they have negatively and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. 
It was not only pride that led man to build the tower, it was fear. They feared that following God's will to fill the earth would not bring happiness and fulfillment. And so rather than follow the will of God in simple faith, they forged their own plan. We don't want to scatter over the face of the earth. They refused to allow God to dictate their goals. And we're right back to Genesis chapter 3. Could I stop here and take a little sideline? Christian, there's an application here for us. We can easily tread this same thin ice. When the will of God begins to look ugly to us, when we begin to despise it and see it as a sure path to failure and frustration, we are on very thin ice morally. I feel trapped in this marriage. I can't bear the thought of gutting it out. I can't follow God's way of love and submission. I've got to try something else. I can't obey my parents this time. Not this time. I'm just not cut out to follow God's will on this matter. I just can't do it. When we get into those modes of thought where we see God's way and God's will and we begin to say, I've got to come up with a different plan, we are on moral thin ice. God said, subdue the earth, fill it, prosper in it. They said, no. We don't want that way. We don't want that plan. We don't want to take that path. We don't want to go over the face of the whole earth. We like this fertile valley, and we want to stay here. Again, I don't think there's anything evil about building a city necessarily, but it's the point of it. To positively exalt the fame of man and negatively to disregard the will of God. So this simple narrative, I think, really encapsulates the ambition of fallen humanity. He's driven by a passion to elevate his own glory over God's and to pursue happiness by following his own will instead of God's. That's all just sermon talk. If it just stops right here in this room. We've got to start thinking that way. That the ambition of fallen humanity is to elevate his own pride and to go a different direction than God wants him to go. And we need to see in the media, in what we read, in the people that we talk to, in the fallen world, that as a society and as a community, this is the bent. This is the ambition. The ambition of fallen humanity is to play God, to serve as his own arbitrator of ethics and to promote his own glory. God can just roll over and die. Few people put it into words like that, but that's the way they live. That's exactly what God will never, ever do. And so we see secondly in this narrative not only the ambition of fallen humanity, but we see secondly the intervention of a sovereign God. Verse 5, God comes down, but the Lord, verse 5, came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. We hear again the refrain sounded in the Garden of Eden after man's sin. Adam is hiding in the trees, behind the trees. God comes and looks for him. Man is here building a tower. God comes down and intervenes. Here in chapter 11, the builders sin and God visits the site of the offense. But notice that God descends to the site. They are building in which direction? Up, 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 up. Look how high we've got the tower. 
Our fame is increasing with every brick. God says, let me take a look. And he comes down, down, down to see it. As one has put it, God must come down to bring into focus, so to speak, what was supposed to be a building invading celestial heights. As another says that Yahweh, that is Jehovah God, must draw near, not because he's nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height and their work is so tiny. God's movement must therefore be understood as a remarkable satire on man's doing. As another puts it, the narrative is filled with condescension. We can't miss that. They build up. God comes down to see what they're doing. You notice there, verse 5, it refers to the men. The Lord came down to see the city, the tower that the men were building. Literally, that is the sons of the man. In the Hebrew, it reads that way, the sons of the man or Adam. They're not gods that are building. They are the sons of the man that God picked up out of the dirt. They're building a tower and God comes down to see it. The men were building... Babylonian culture which developed around the city in the generations to come credited the building of Babel's tower to the gods. They said this tower was built by the gods, not by man. God looks down and he sees, let's see what man is doing. The earthling, the one that I brought up out of the dirt as he builds with dirt, let's see what he's doing. For them, that is for the Babylonians, the work was celestial. The biblical account sees the project as terrestrial. It's a building, it's a tower built by earthlings. So God, as it were, comes down to take a close look. And then verse 6, he deliberates, just like they deliberated. The Lord said, verse 6, The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. There should go up our spine a shudder there. Nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. It amazes me to this day that somebody somewhere figured out, let's go to the moon, and we've gotten there. That's just incredible. If you begin to understand the science of how you get into space and stay there and live there and come back through and aren't consumed by our atmosphere, it's it's amazing. What we plan to do, we can accomplish. God doesn't look at that and say, well, that's no big deal, and just scoff and just laugh at this place. He's deeply concerned. If humanity is allowed to continue to work in global solidarity, they will be able to devise nearly any plan and to work that plan to completion. Well, what's so bad about that? Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 is what's so bad about it. Remember that passage. Genesis 6, 5. Before the destruction of the flood, Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You get humanity, fallen humanity, in a global society with complete unification of language, a complete unification of culture, what they can accomplish is frightening. And so God devises a plan by which to limit the potential evil of human disobedience. Man is planning and deliberating. We're going to build, we're going to build, we're going to build. God comes down and he deliberates with himself and he says, let's think a minute here. This is dangerous. 
So God devises his own plan. Verse 7, come. Did you hear that word before? That's what the people were saying to themselves. Come, let's build. God says, verse 7, come. Let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Come, as in verses 3 and 4. Man states his plan of execution. God answers with his own plan of execution. Notice that God does not decide to topple the tower, does he? What good is that going to do? They'll just build it up again. He doesn't topple the tower. He strikes at the cooperative power of sinners by destroying the common bond of language. Language differences are inexplicable in an evolutionary model. It's a phenomenon which baffles secular scientists. But it is a phenomenon that no one can deny. And whatever the origin, and here's where it gets a little different for us as we look at it in a modern world, for whatever, whatever the origin of, of languages, which we, of course, believe is Genesis 11, but whatever you say about the origin of languages, it's obvious that language differences are beginning to mean what? More and more or less and less? Less and less all the time. But we need, as modern people in the modern era, or postmodern era, as we love to call it, we need to remember that for millennia, the idea of a difference of language scared people to death. It separated people. You stayed away from language groups that you didn't understand. It was a fear factor. And I think we might even get just a little sense of that if we've ever walked into a place where nobody's speaking our language. It's just a little bit unnerving. But happening at the hand of God in judgment, it was frightening and people scattered. They ran from each other. You did not for millennia encounter someone who spoke a different language for any other reason, basically, than to kill them off and to occupy their land, maybe to gain wealth from them in some way. But as time has passed, this difference is breaking down, or the, the, the division of language is not so significant as it has been in the past, but at this place it was profound. What is the result of God's deliberation? This is what he decides to do. I'll confuse their language so that they're afraid of each other. They can't continue uh, in their plan. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. The sons of men wanted to build a city. They did not want to scatter over the face of the earth. What happened? They stopped building the city and they scattered over the face of the earth. That is further evidence of the sovereignty of God, of His power, of His majesty. And there's two principles for us that I think we need to take out of this judgment. Number one is that God is in absolute control of fallen humanity. They deliberated, they got together, they decided what was going to happen, and it didn't matter. Although it is a fallen world with many cruel people, it tells us that God is in absolute control and therefore no one will have a free shot at your life. Never. No one will bring upon you anything which does not first pass through the gate of an all-wise God. He can confuse society in one movement. He can take care of you. He can stop anyone and anything at any time if he so chooses. If he doesn't so choose, he will give you the grace to endure it. The rest of the scriptures teach us. We learn also, secondly, that God's punishments are filled with mercy. God could have destroyed humanity here again. He said he'd never flood the earth again, but he didn't say he wouldn't come down with fire. 
He could have destroyed all of these people right then and there, but he doesn't do that. He scatters them. Now listen, this is a long quotation, but it's said so well. I want to read it to you. Dalich says, The breaking up of the united human race into peoples with different languages was a divine act for the good of man. For by this means a barrier was made against sin, which without the separating wall of the language would have attained a terrible intensity. Now, however, the immoral and irreligious products of one nation are not equally destructive to another. And many false religions are better than one since they paralyze one another. Even war which arises from the selfish character of nationalities is better than the idle peace of universal estrangement from God. And so in mercy, God divides and scatters lost humanity. But how does fallen humanity respond to God's decision? You answer it. How do they? By relentlessly pursuing the global unification of humanity to the glory of humanity. What's the motto of all time? Unified global peace and prosperity on earth without God. That's the motto of all time. Now let's get back to the point. Verse 9 concludes the section. Notice verse 9. That is why it was called Babel. That is this tower, this city that they were building. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Babel, or as we know it, Babylon, situated on the Euphrates River in Babylonia. Following the dispersion of Genesis 11, the ancient city of Babylon went on to serve as the first chief city of ancient civilization. As time passed, the brick and tar were replaced by stone and mortar. And ancient Babylon became a thing of beauty. So majestic and prominent was Babylon on earth that the mythology of the pagans taught that Babylon was built by the gods. You know, as the builders die off, everybody forgets who they are, and so they can just come in and say, the gods built it. That's who built it. Look at how majestic this city is. You know what the name Babylon means in the tongue of the Babylonians? It was pronounced Babylon, and it meant gate of God. Archaeologists have unearthed a massive tower which stood in ancient Babylon, as well as in all the other major cities of Babylonia. It's known as a ziggurat. It's a kind of a step tower that moves up to the top where there is a sanctuary. On some of these towers, there's more than one sanctuary. It would rival the pyramids of Egypt, maybe not quite as large because they were built much earlier and uh, some of them built with brick as, as uh, well as with stone. But there were these step towers. So this Tower of Babel, I, I think, I don't know that what the archaeologists have uncovered is the Tower of Babel. But it was probably, Babel was probably the prototype of the towers that we archaeologists have discovered and have found in Babylonia. Do you know what the Babylonians called their towers? What they call their city? Babylon, the gate of God. What did they call this tower, these ziggurats? They called them this, the house of the foundations of heaven and earth. Now think about it. In utter disrespect of this glorious city, the biblical text links Babel with the Hebrew word for confused. Babel doesn't mean confused. But the Hebrew word confused, Balal, sounds like Babel. So the biblical text uses a wordplay to link Babel with divine confusion. 
Lost humanity viewed Babylon as the crown jewel of the earth. God viewed it as a symbol of destruction and judgment. So you notice there at the end of verse 9, what is the final outcome? From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. From there. There is where they planted. There is where they settled. But from there, God scattered them. They saw it as a place of unification. God saw it as a place of disbursement. What lost humanity saw as the seed of human glory and rebellion against God became the very place of divine judgment. And there is a day coming when this entire earth will go the way of Babylon. So this narrative that we find here succinctly captures the universal spiritual battle which characterizes human history. As each page of human history turns, it finds man as a society driven by a passion to unite against the glory of God for the glory of man. We leave this primitive account with man uniting against the purposes of God. Where does the Bible end? Right back here. It's future yet to us, but you go to Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 18, and you find again Babylon, a city, a world now, a global city, rising up in rebellion against the sovereign God. To this present day, it is fallout from the divine confusing and scattering of the nations of Babel, which continues to thwart man's efforts to usurp the place of God on earth one last time. But we need to understand as we filter our world and look at history that despite ongoing hostilities and disagreements between nations, there is an incessant cry for the world to rebuild Babel, to unite for global peace and prosperity, to restore Babylon. We are to our core a humanistic nation. And we are driven and led by those who lay down the philosophies of humanism. Listen to the Humanist Manifesto too. And I just ask for those of you that are still with me and awake here, listen to the Humanist Manifesto too, and put in the background Babel. Just think about it. It says this, Humanity to survive requires bold and daring measures. Only a shared world and global measures will suffice. A humanist outlook will tap the creativity of each human being and provide the vision and courage for us to work together. We deplore the division of humankind on nationalistic grounds. grounds. <clears throat> we have reached a turning point in human history where the best option is to transcend the limits of national sovereignty and to move toward the building of a world community in which all sectors of human family can participate. Thus we look to the development of a system of world law and a world order. Human progress can no longer be achieved by focusing on one section of the world. No part of humankind can be isolated from any other. Each person's future in some way is linked to all. We thus reaffirm a commitment to the building of a world community. Well, that raises a lot of obstacles, doesn't it? There's a lot of problems to developing that world unity. Well, where, where do they go? This is what their resolutions are as they try to develop that theme. Number one, they're going to have no war. War is obsolete. The document says that. War is obsolete. <laughs> I don't know what they do when they read the newspaper, but at any rate, they're trying to say no war. Secondly, save the ecosystem. Thirdly, a global economy and the elimination of poverty. 
And fourth, they say we must push technology to the limits. There must be worldwide communication, worldwide travel, and in the words of the document, full international cooperation in culture, science, the arts, and technology across ideological lines. And in that vein of the technology that's needed, one has noted that the Lockheed Corporation has boasted in Scientific American ad that through its computers it was, and this is the ad, it says this, undoing the Babel effect. By uniting the world in one language, once again, IBM and other scientific corporations have made similar boasts. It's imagined that to unite the world would put an end to competition and conflict between nations and usher in a golden era of peace and prosperity. I know it's getting late. We Hang with me a little longer because we've got to ask this question or we go out of here lost. We haven't gained anything. What's wrong with global unification? Are we be frightened when Lockheed says they're coming up with a computer system that says everybody can speak the same language? I don't think so. There's nothing inherently evil about breaking down barriers between people groups. What is wrong is that fallen humanity breaks down barriers in order to what? To exalt man in rejection of God. Fallen humanity wants to unite mankind at Babel in order to exalt the name of man. God wants to unite mankind at Calvary in order to exalt the name of Christ. The city of Babylon to the east and the city of Zion to the west serve as paradigms of the ongoing hostility between the people of God who follow God's program and the people of the serpent who promote Satan's program. Christ longs to break down the barriers between diverse nations. Do you believe that? I believe that fully on the authority of Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. The only legitimate means, however, of human unification is salvation in Christ. There is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one Father, one Savior. There's to be a uniting of all people across all bounds, but the, uni the uniting factor is Christ. As Christ's people on earth, should we read Genesis 11, 1 through 9 and say, wow, I, 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 boy, I shouldn't live in a city and I should really stay isolated to the people who speak my language and are of kind, of, kind of my uh, social group and way? Not at all. Is that what the New Testament teaches? I think on the basis of the New Testament, we are called to learn other languages to move into the great cities of the world and to proclaim the truth to all people so that the lost are genuinely saved and thus united together with us in Christ. There's to be a new family. There's to be a new, as it were, nation. Those who are in Christ. As the world labors to unite against God, we labor to bring people together in spiritual union in Christ. But is that what's happening in larger Christendom today? By Christendom, I just mean anybody calls himself a Christian or is a religious kind of person. Is that what's going on? We're witnessing a sharp decrease in missionaries learning other language, going to other countries to proclaim the gospel of Christ in established churches. A major decrease. What are we seeing as an increase? The desire to unite all existing Christians, quote-unquote, believers, across denominational lines, etc., on the basis of organizational oneness. That's frightening. 
The religious world of our day is more and more operating according to the belief of Rodney Romney, the pastor of Seattle's First Baptist Church. He said this. You listen to it and filter it. Christ meant to establish a world religion that would synthesize every creed. No. Christ never intended to synthesize human religions. He came to destroy human religion. He came not to synthesize every creed. He came to establish the only creed. And He called mankind to yield in humble submission to the one creed, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the nations, but to those who are being saved, the power of God. I don't know how there are evangelical Christians who can look around to what is happening in the larger Christendom and not be moved with concern. We have and must, I think, to a degree, begin to call names. As the exclusive nature of Christ's message rings in our ears from Calvary, we listen to such as the founder of Promise Keepers, a group which labors feverishly with intensity to unite under one big tent, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, World Council of Church representatives, Moonies, Mormons. Now this is rambling, I know, but it's a speech and I'm cutting out a lot. Listen to this speech by the founder at one of the meetings. We have a plan. Baptists, Lutherans, Roman Catholics, etc. We've been divided. Nobody can go out of here, out of this meeting, without a pl the same plan. Every man connected to a church, every church connected to each other. You've got to say to your pastor, he says to these assembled men, you lead me. I put my faith in you as my leader. Now, pastors, we are asking you to connect with the other pastors in the community. Come together in prayer and then call your men together and tell them about the needs in the community. Meet the needs in the community. Promise Keeper is sponsoring nine pastors' conferences in 1998. We'll be sure that your pastor participates. We need a unity of command. We need to have everybody on the same page. Now I want you to hear this. On January of the 1st, the year 2000, we're calling on every church that names the name of Jesus Christ to gather...